Welcome to the March 2018 ATS Sectional Medical Education Podcast on Team-Based Learning, a Practical Approach. Welcome again. I'm your podcaster, Deepak Pradhan from New York University. Our last podcast gave an overview of different active learning modalities, and today I thought we'd take a deeper look at one of those modalities, team-based learning, or TBL. I really wanted to discuss a practical approach for those of us considering adding this to our teaching armamentarium, or for those already using it, provide useful tips to help us be more successful. I'd like to introduce our guest today. Dr. Dean Parmalee, who's a full professor in psychiatry and pediatrics and director of educational scholarship and program development at Boonshoff School of Medicine at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. A champion of team-based learning, he served as the inaugural president of the Team-Based Learning Collaborative and has conducted numerous, numerous national and international workshops on team-based learning and curriculum design with learners from all training levels, including faculty. He's also the recipient of the 2016 AAMC AOA Robert J. Glazer Distinguished Teaching Award for his contributions to advancing active learning techniques globally for the last 30 years. Dean, welcome. Thank you. So let's delve straight in. Dean, broadly, how do you define team-based learning? What are the major tenets or principles of this active learning modality? Sure, sure. Happy to do so. Um, I think... uh, The simplest definition is uh, one that I have on the slides, and it's a teacher-directed strategy for incorporating small group active participation in larger group educational settings. And um, it was developed uh, first about, I'd say, 1990-91 in the business school at the University of Oklahoma by Larry Michelson, a uh, management professor and uh, who grew tired of uh, large lecture um, presentations where he had no idea whether students were getting it, being able to use it, uh, and so forth. Um, So there are several components to to team-based learning, and I I, want to emphasize on the front end that one of the guiding principles is to keep in mind that um, that it, it's a teaching and learning strategy that really focuses on the learners developing um, critical thinking skills as opposed to just demonstrating mastery of content. And if one is familiar with Bloom's taxonomy, um, it it very much goes up the ladder, as it were, from uh, simple defining and remembering and listing uh, to being able to have learners demonstrate that they can uh, create, design, develop, uh, formulate uh, using the content that uh, is involved. Um, so that that's a little bit of background, and I think on the skinny side, I can say there are three core components. One is preparation. 
And this is where learners at whatever level, there's a modest expectation, of course, um, for residents and faculty, but they still do it, uh, for preparation ahead of class. And that's probably one of, in, in college and high school and in medical school, that's one of the first, like little resistances from the learners is, what, you mean I have to, I have to prepare before being told? <laughs> Um, so preparation is expected. Um, two is what we call the readiness assurance. Some people say this is a quiz or a test. We call it readiness assurance because we want to focus on learners demonstrating first as individuals that they have um, uh, worked on that content, the knowledge side, to be able to use it for problem solving. And also, since part of readiness assurance is within a small group of learners, that group also demonstrates um, their capacity to work together to um, solve problems. And finally is what we call the application exercise in every TBL, which is the, um, I think, the core. And here is where we faculty instructors put the greatest amount of intellectual and time effort to creating um, uh, not just questions, but scenarios, problem sets, whatever, that are going to really challenge our learners to use the material that they have mastered in, in authentic ways. That's a great introduction into TBL. As a uh, quick aside, I will be placing your slide set on TBL along with other resources on the ATS section on Medical Education website on the page dedicated to this podcast for our listeners. But back to this discussion, how is TBL different from other active learning modalities, particularly problem-based learning? What makes it unique? Well, problem-based learning, uh, there, there, are two, um, there are three big differences with problem-based learning. One is problem-based learning uh, requires a facilitator or faculty person for each and every small group. Uh, whereas in team-based learning, you're in one classroom and one faculty person, one instructor is all you really need. So um, that's a core logistical resource issue because um, you don't need a whole bunch of small group rooms. Number two, a big difference is with problem-based learning, the students, the learners are given a case um, de novo, which has a lot of educational benefit, of course. Um, but it differs from TBL in that the TBL instruction instructor always provides this is this is the minimum that I want you to prepare in preparation for the session. It doesn't mean the maximum. It means this this is the best resource I have on this topic. I expect you to master that, and if you find others, that's fine too. You're not not limited. And then the third, and I think this is a critical difference that students report, is that because um, we, uh, I've done, I've done both, um, is that in problem-based learning there is no decision-making process. Um, lot, much of it is brainstorming, exploration, uh, explaining. There's a lot of teaching that can go on, but. But a group, an individual in a group in, in a problem-based learning format does not, does not come to a decision about something. And that, that's probably one of the defining moments in team-based learning where 
the group really has to make make a decision, and then they have to be prepared to defend it. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I was a problem-based tutor in college, and we had some sort of facilitator for each and every group, and that mm -hmm. meant that we had to make sure that each group was learning the same things. Facilitators had to be all coordinating, so it was a lot of manpower or person power and resources uh, yes. for problem-based learning. Do you find that there are certain topics that are either ideal for the TBL approach or, contrarily, that you'd say, no, you probably don't want to use this uh, approach for? I'd say a content area that is heavy in mastering vocabulary, as it were, definitional, as opposed to concepts or application of, of vocabulary. So that's where it would be most challenging. I think they use it in some law schools. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, groups have to make a, make a decision and, and then defend it. And, of course, law school uh, attenders, they just love that. That's why they go to law school. Um, <laughs> The uh, other areas that I think it has particular strength in are are the sciences, engineering, math, uh, because there uh, you hope that the focus is on um, not just understanding important concepts, be, but being able to interpret and use them in in novel situations. Excellent. Now, Dean, regarding logistics of preparation, is there an optimal size for a group and number of groups for a session? For a, a team, the, the evidence really supports the team membership being limited to as few as five and as most as seven. And there are a number of studies showing that you go over seven, there's always one or two people who will drift off because just sure. the geography will make it happen, but um, it's just too big. And if you get under five, uh, the groups don't have the brain power to uh, solve the more complex problems. I see. And is there an upper limit to the number of groups per session? The largest number I have ever seen is down at the University of Texas, of course. They have a classroom that was built, uh, uh, tiered, and holds 300 students. And so there they have 30-some uh, teams in that, that large room. I, at my school, we have 115 students in a class. That is 19 groups. And so you can do the math on down. Sure. I personally, in my experience, it, the minimum number of small groups is three. If you get down mm -hmm. to two, then you're just going to have two groups debating with each other and not not having the kind of dialogue and the discussion that, that you need from, from at least one other team uh, chipped in there. Hmm. Two groups with differing opinions, unable to convince the other group resulting in deadlock. Sounds like the American political system to me. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Maybe if we had more parties, something would actually get done. No doubt okay. about that. Speaking of that, the uh, folks who do hardcore cognitive science stuff um, on learning and group development, a lot of it's sponsored by Google and the big, big corporations because they want to know what are the what are the best ways to form teams that are going to be productive. And a lot of that literature comes out with, uh, you know what, 
uh, you have to, the more women you have on a team, uh, the better they're going to do. So just think about the U.S. Congress. <laughs> yes, women unfortunately make up less than 20% of Congress. That being said, I really didn't expect this podcast to take a detour into politics and women. Uh, let's get us back on track. Dean, when do you organize teams? Ahead of time or at the beginning of the session? At the very beginning, you want you want your teams to be formed. And if it's the very first time, you, you hope that um, they can continue to work together over a period of time. If you only have two or three sessions with the groups, that's okay. You just um, have them stay in their same uh, same teams. Teams, uh, there's a, there's a process of teams learning how to work together and make decisions. It it it's easy, you know, when when you cluster a group of people together, it's either easy for them to socialize a little bit, get to know each other, and everybody's happy uh, to be working together, but then. They have to solve some problems and express different opinions, and guess what? There are different personalities there, different backgrounds, and that that leads to tension and conflict, which is good. Um, but it that take that's a process that takes a little time. Understand. And uh, what about the duration of a session? What's a good amount of time to budget for for the actual session time? Well, it all dep- I, I wouldn't go under an hour. If you if you have an hour, let's say with a group of residents or fellows, because that, that you know you may be just stuck with a noontime conference, then you're going to abbreviate some things. So um, uh, an hour would be a minimum, and, and there you've really got a got to hustle as the instructor. Um, we do not. We've learned through experience that, and maybe this isn't appropriate to say in your field, but uh, at least learners in a classroom, brain death sets in at two and a half hours. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and, and you know, the uh, being able to pay attention in a lecture, um, 11 to 17 minutes is the maximum that adults, young adults can pay attention. So, um, have them in a classroom working on problems, moving around, that sort of thing, you can make it up to two and a half hours. Just don't go over that. Okay. And so what's the role of the instructor? What is it that the instructor needs to do before the actual session, so in the uh, kind of planning phases? So there's some critical steps for the planning um, of a TBL session, and I like to use what's called the backward design approach. So if your focus is, well, at the end of that hour, at the end of those two hours, what is it that I want my learners to be able to do that they couldn't do beforehand? And um, if you stick with that as your overarching objective, then you first develop, well, what what is a good complex, challenging question or set of questions that I'm going to require people in their groups to make specific choice, you know, not not a lot of ambiguity, but a specific choice. That's the first step, and that is the hardest. Now, in medicine, we have so many uh, real-life cases where the complexity is just inherent, and there is a lot of ambiguity. And often, I think those make great application exercises because then 
you as the instructor may have a best choice because it worked for you or you know from the evidence that this is best. Um, but let's face it, you, you're willing to hear and hear other perspectives and contextual issues that you may not have thought of. So um, in general, a best specific choice is key, but um, if there are others that are equally good and defensible, then uh, we encourage it. In you know the critical care world, there's a mm-hmm. lot of decision making that is there's no one single right answer necessarily. But right. I think that kind of debate uh, regarding of, of you know management and maybe people can agree or disagree on uh, a better solution uh, is, right. is something good for for TBL. Absolutely. And with the pre stuff, how do you ensure learner accountability? particularly when dealing with learners who are not being formally graded, such as residents, fellows, attendings? Well, um, um, I've done a lot of these workshops with grown-up faculty, (laughs) and it it only takes about 20 minutes into a a TBL session where um, those groups have already formed. I mean, they may never have worked together in their lives, but um, uh, when they start to do the group uh, readiness assurance test and to make a consensus decision, they're paying attention to how their group is doing with it. And believe it or not, they they become cohesive because they it's kind of a natural phenomenon. They want their group to lead. <laughs> be the best. Um, So even without grades, you will see uh, grown-ups become competitive, not within the team so much. That that doesn't happen, but between teams. So I, uh, on my um, slideshow there, I, I, I have a little, I have a slide that demonstrates the IFAT card, which I highly recommend uh, acquiring. You can get them online. They're not they're not inexpensive, and you have to prove that you're an educational entity, but they're like lottery tickets, and the group has to make a decision and then scratch off, and they find out immediately whether they got it right or not. Mm, I see. And it's one of the most powerful learning devices I think ever invented, and the other thing that it does is it, is it creates loyalty and cohesion within that group. So... Uh, the reward for people to work hard at this is related to that. Now, I have um, I have known of residency programs that keep track of how form teams perform over time, and every at the end of every month, um, a team will get a set of Starbucks cards um, <laughs> to share. Um, so departmental budgets may be stretched a little bit. Uh, I, I've heard of one program down south where the winning team by Christmas would have a dinner with the chair at his or her country club. <laughs> I see. So, you know, you you can come up with inexpensive ways to add a little add a little more competition to the to the learners. It makes it fun. Yeah, no, the IFAT scratch-off form is kind of interesting. I mean, you know, otherwise people will be writing down Ds and changing them to Bs maybe. Uh, so it kind of, you know, forces you to make that one That's decision, right. I guess. Yeah, yes. very interesting. Absolutely. 
Similarly, in the application exercise, we don't use the scratch-off, but we use very simple hold-up answer cards, A, A through E, whatever, and all teams lift them at the same time. So it's simultaneous, and then they have to defend what they're putting up there. You can also use uh, the large uh, post-it flip chart things so that um, um, somebody has to, the, the the task is to calculate and demonstrate your calculation for a formula or a, a uh, situation and circle your final answer so that you, you look across that classroom and you see how people got there and ask them to defend, well, why did you do this? Why did you do that? Keep it very focused. How do you orient the learners at the beginning of the session, particularly if they've never undergone a uh, TBL session before? Well, first you put them into teams. They won't know, understand why. Um, and then you explain. And <laughs> then you get busy. And, and I mean, I never lecture about this is this this is what it is. This is what we're going to do. I just get people doing it, and they catch on very quickly. Excellent. And then during the um, actual session itself, what is the instructor doing? What is their role? How are they facilitating this process? When, uh, when, when the groups are trying to make a decision, let's say it's during the uh, GRAT, uh, the best role for the facilitator, the instructor, I will call, um, is to circulate, not answer any questions, not ask any questions, but to listen in on the arguments and listen in on which, which questions have been most difficult. And, and then that gives you fodder for the discussion of the GRAD answers because ideally you have some teams that didn't get 100% and they get, they get a little riled up. Well, why isn't C right here? And so you've already listened in on some of the arguments, and then you your your biggest role at this part at, at this point is Socratic, uh, asking them to explain. Well, how did you get there? And then asking another team, pick somebody at random. Why did your team pick A, which I think is the right answer? Can you explain it to team three here because they they seem confused. So it becomes a Socratic role rather than a didactic role. Yeah, I, I, I love the fact that it's teams who are teaching other teams, peers teaching yes. other peers right. uh, as well. So it's not just coming you know, uh, down the mountain from one source, Absolutely. essentially. Absolutely. In fact, that's probably one of the biggest challenges for us experts because we... You know, we're like these wind-up toys. You get in front of a group of learners, and they're looking at you, and they're expecting you to uh, speak from the mountain, and we're, you know, that switch is thrown, and you want to, quote, teach. Uh, you have to shut up, and you have to say, can you explain that? And then you can say, well, you know, I, I like that explanation. I don't, think, I don't think you're right, and this is why. So there's a there's an importance for the content expert to clarify misconceptions, uh, but first and foremost, question. So learners have pre-readings, then you have the individual readiness assurance test, which can happen either before the session or at the beginning of the session, and then you have a team-based readiness assurance test, and then the crux of it is a team application exercise that takes up the bulk of the session. 
Can you elaborate on the team application exercise, particularly how you structure it and any tips you have for success? I think in the clinical realm, the, there are a couple of really good ways. Uh, one is if you have a video clip or you have a set of data, uh, let's say uh, x-rays, blood gases, um, data that that may, uh, uh, you know, and happens all the t- time, things are not quite consistent. They don't make sense in a particular case. And then to generate uh, a question about this, a question that involves making a choice. Uh, what what do you do in this? What what is your initial intervention? What what is your leading uh, differential diagnosis here? Uh, number one. Um, so you want to you want to take something that is authentic and in that content area that you know will be for that level of learner is going to be a challenge, and they they're going to have to work as a group. Um, to figure it out. Now, how they display their product is really important. Now, bear in mind that all teams are working on the same problem. There is nothing worse for group process (laughs) in a situation like this to have teams each doing something different and then they report Mm -hmm. on what they did and so forth. That puts everybody to sleep. Everybody. Mm -hmm. Whereas if they're all working on the same problem and they know they're going to have to defend their answer, their choice, their product, everybody stays awake and engaged. In terms of you know things that you've written, I, I was reading about that, right, everybody's working on that same problem. It's a significant problem. And then they're you know, making a specific choice in terms of, of a, you know, some sort of detailed question. And there's also a part that you're talking about with simultaneous reporting uh, between the different groups. Can you talk about that a little? So, um, very simply, you have to have a way that when time is up, okay, guys, we've, we, our 20 minutes are up for your, you're trying to figure this out. On the count of three, uh, and here's where if it's in a multiple choice format, um, you've already provided every team with the, some plastic cards, A through E, all the, uh, uh, raise your choice. And they hold it high up over their head. You know what's there. They can put it in a little stand if you if you might forget. Um, and then you start your Socratic process of how did you get to that. And ideally, there are different answers in the room. Another way that we do it is if you have the small, um, they're about 18 inches by 10 inches, little whiteboard things. Um, if it's something that is two or three words, or it's a formula, or it's a um, uh, calculation where they got to put a final answer, they write it on that and hold it up at the same time. Or you can use the sticky post-it notes through 3M. Uh, the large ones, they write their responses on the sheet of paper, and count of three, everybody sticks it up on the wall. And then you can do a voting process. If you've asked them, in your case, um, a a specific treatment plan to address some specific component, and in no more than five or six words, um, they post that up, and then you give the whole class five minutes to walk around and taking a little colored sticky, each person puts on that post-it note the one that they think is best, but they're not allowed to put it on their own groups. And assuming there are discrepancies amongst the groups, then you have a group explain their rationale. Do you let the group select a spokesperson? 
Don't mm-hmm. don't okay. let them select. Try to try to do it randomly, because okay. extroverts extroverts will always raise their hand, and everybody else can go to sleep because they know Johnny's going to be the one to speak. I don't have to worry about it. But come on, <laughs> we've got competency development here on how to how to present and how to how to do a little public speaking. So we use an app on the phone that you put all the names of the the uh, learners, and it's like a little roulette wheel spins around, pick somebody at random. Or you can use ping pong. You, there are all kinds of ways to do it, but um, you, you want to let, let them know at the beginning that you're going to pick on people totally at random, uh, so everybody's got to stay prepared. Otherwise, sure. if you're... If you're the quiet sort, boy, you take a sigh of relief. <laughs> yeah, right. No, this is going to ensure everybody is potentially engaged. That's um, right. And then, so one group, uh, you know, gives their rationale. Maybe the other gives an, uh, their own rationale. Mm-hmm. At what point is there a time point where you then give your feedback or your sure. thoughts on it? Or absolutely, absolutely. You, you. I mean, even if. By let's say there are two teams that have something different, but uh, you like both of them. You say why. If there's a misconception in the thinking of any group, you want to clarify that. Um, and then ideally, you take a couple of minutes at the very end to summarize. Uh, the, these are the take. These are what I'm seeing as the takeaways here. Perfect. Exactly. That was actually one of my questions was going to be, what happens then? How do you conclude the session, you know, so that everybody kind of learned the same things potentially? Yeah. And and again, it is the the last thing you want, uh, particularly a specialist to do is to to go into that lecture mode. You want it very, very focused (laughs) on this. These are what I see as the takeaways today. Excellent. And, um, now, taking a step back, have you have you noticed in all the sessions you've had things that that make it successful? Things that you say, oh, these are the things that'll make a, for a successful session. Uh, number one is the preparation of the actual exercise, the um, design of it, and the detailed kind of planning and thoughtfulness. I mean, it is so different, and this is what scares faculty the most. To do it right and to do it well requires a lot of work. Um, I mean, we're talking about uh, people preferring to do a three- or four-hour lecture on a topic versus one of these because this is more work to prepare for. Um, So preparation is key, and having the materials lined up so uh, everything is ready to go and time starts, um, that's probably probably a a real key uh, for the success of a session. And another thing is really important is to get at least one or two other people to review your materials ahead of time and help you edit. Because when you write something, you you know, you just don't think of everything. Um, Not just common errors, but you know, uh, a, a senior resident may say, you know, I just don't think this makes sense. Um, I think I would, re- I would rephrase this, something like that. Just a peer, re- a peer review process is really important. All of, all of our sessions, there's, there's no session that can happen with our students with it, having, it not having been peer reviewed and edited. Those are great suggestions. Outside of the, the the content parts of things, in other words, are there benefits uh, to this approach that go past just the content part? Yeah, that, I mean, when we talk about the non-cognitive processes that 
can occur. Um, and and you, for an instructor to be able to use some reflective practice um, uh, cues um, is very good. To ask a group how, what was the process that led you to this decision? So better decision-making, group decision-making can occur, better communication, um, interpersonal skills, and uh, public speaking, um, uh, accountability, recognizing that in, uh, in the real world you're accountable to yourself, but you're also accountable to the people that you work with. The team part of things is is how we actually practice medicine is in a multidisciplinary team, um, and so I think that this is 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 very much uh, in keeping with that type of of process. In fact, I, I know most residency programs don't. Um, well, I mean, in the simulation center, uh, they'll use um, other disciplines, but there's no reason why. Uh, not to have a TBL session on uh, patient safety, quality improvement, or some uh, taxing legal issue, um, and have nurses and OTs and you know whole you know a wider set of disciplines in there with residents and other physicians. Uh, it, it makes a rich a rich discussion. Now we live in a evidence based world, so is there data supporting TBL as compared with other active learning modalities? Regarding outcomes, head to head, I don't think you'll find that yet. Um, there's definitely two areas of evidence in that TBL, at least in the college and in the medical school environment. Two things: one is academic outcomes are improved, particularly for learners who are more challenged in that particular content area. Um, that's pretty definitive. Um, the only other um, uh, teaching and learning strategy that has some similar support, and all of this is over and above lecture-based curricula, uh, would be peer instruction developed by Eric Mazur at Harvard. Um, there's a 2014 article in the National Academy of Science uh, that nicely displays, um, from an experimental perspective, the benefits of active learning for academic achievement uh, over lecture-based curricula. In fact, Paul Wyman, Nobel Prize laureate at Stanford, said that continuing to, provide, to do lectures uh, is like continuing to do bloodletting. <laughs> Death by a thousand lectures. And, um, you know, as a, we're starting to kind of wrap up, I'm just thinking, is there resources out there that uh, educators who are interested in either trying this uh, modality or improving on use of this modality can, can uh, you know, reach out to and utilize? Absolutely. The, and easy to access. Uh, it's the Team-Based Learning uh, Collaborative, just teambasedlearning.org. Uh, the website is filled with links and resources as a free listserv. So take yourself. You could go on to the listserv and ask a question about how do I get started with uh, uh, this subject matter with this particular group of learners I have. And there will be somebody else out there who will respond who's done it has suggestions. Um, there's some video clips showing classroom, uh, act, ha how it looks in the classroom, um, and uh, 
uh, uh, a fairly up-to-date bibliography in terms of the evidence and the publications to date, particularly over the past decade. Great. So I'll definitely be including that on our webpage on this podcast Great. so that uh, listeners and viewers can, can access that directly. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so, Dean, any other kind of additional comments or thoughts that you'd like to share with our, our listeners? Um, I guess the two things that I would say from our experience is that if one is brave and wants to do this and does it, um, number one, don't don't be surprised if it doesn't sail perfectly or well the first time. It sometimes takes two or three times to get it down. But once you do, you'll never go back um, to another uh, to a to a PowerPoint death by PowerPoint approach, and the other thing is to keep in mind that um, it cannot be done at the last minute, like throwing together a bunch of PowerPoint slides for a presentation. It's just you have to think so carefully about the questions and the way people are going to uh, think. Perfect. I think that's a, a great note to end on. Okay. So, Dean, again. Um, Thank you so much for participating in this podcast, sharing your vast knowledge and insights on team-based learning. I'm sure our listeners will find it very useful practically. Thank you so much. Thank you. This concludes our podcast with Dean Parmalee on a practical approach to team-based learning. Look for future podcasts on other active learning modalities. But first, we'll be releasing a podcast in April on Medical Education Roadmap for the upcoming ATS International Conference 2018, highlighting the medical education offerings you can look forward to if you're attending the conference. Thanks for listening. Bye now.